I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 355. And today in the show, we're talking serious deer hunting tactics with Wisconsin DIY bow hunting expert, Joe Rentmeister. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, you are in for a treat because we are getting back into some serious deer talk. Now, I know over the past month or two, I've occasionally kind of, I don't know, we've explored some different kinds of things. We've talked mushrooms, we've talked high-level conservation advocacy, we've talked cooking and all sorts of other slightly off-the-mainstream whitetail beat kind of stuff. And I'm glad we did that. It's the off season after all, and there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with stretching our horizons a little bit. But if uh, if I'm being honest, I know that we're all chomping at the bit for deer hunting season, which unbelievably is quickly approaching. So today we are going to give you an extra large helping of know-how to help in your preparations. And to do that, my guest today is Joe Rentmeister. Now, if you're not familiar with him, here's some quick background. Joe is a Wisconsin deer hunter who many folks probably know because of his appearances and collaborations with Dan Infault and the Hunting Beast Forum videos and podcasts. You also might know him from some of his appearances on the Hunting Public's videos. He's been on the Public Land Challenge episodes. And I think that most of you are familiar with Dan Infault, and we've had him on the show multiple times. And what's cool about Joe is that he's been able to learn firsthand from hunting with Dan over the years, and then has been able to go out there and put his own spin on this beast style of hunting that many of us have become familiar with. And he's done it really successfully. In fact, the OG himself, uh, Dan Infault, has called Joe the next great, and I quote here, he's called him the next great big buck serial killer, end quote. So what I'm trying to say is that Joe knows his stuff. He's having success killing mature bucks in a lot of tough situations like public land in Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and he's trusted and admired by many of the best hunters in the country. Which all leads me to say this. Hunting season's almost here. I can feel the skin prickly on the back of my neck as I say that. Um, Hunting season's almost here, and Joe is going to help you and I get ready. So, without further ado, let's talk bucks. 
All right. I am here now with Joe Rentmeester. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you making the time to do it. Like uh, like we were just talking about, I know you've got a little baby there at home, and I know from personal experience that's no easy task. So uh, thanks for making this happen. No, not a problem. So far, so good. He doesn't have legs where he can take off on me, so I think <laughs> so far, so good. Man, that's a good point. I, I, I've just gotten to where my second son is back in the stage where he can't well he can't move my older son runs around all the time and now i'm appreciating the one that's immobile so much now yeah those toddlers man they keep you on your toes but you never know you never know the door is gonna fly open and they're gonna go out (laughs) oh man or or crash into the office and interrupt a podcast so be be warned for that too Um, well, cool, Joe. I, uh, I'm excited to be able to have this conversation because you're a guy who I've, I've kept tabs on from afar. I've been watching what you've been up to. Of course, you know, I've been following and learning from Dan Infault a lot myself and, and you've been a part of that sphere. And, um, so it's been nice to see another, you know, there's been a, a pretty significant group of, of young guys kind of coming under Dan's wing, learning from him and taking that into their own world, their own places, and putting it into action. Would you would you say that's a fair way to describe you as like a Dan Infault disciple? Um, is that is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I would say that's absolutely fair. And there there are a lot of guys that uh, came out of the beast and went and did other things, or or got better. Yeah, absolutely huge a huge number of guys that have been on your podcast in the past. I know Andy May being one of them. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. Lots of them. I, um, actually a, a friend of mine, another beast guy, uh, who, who I actually was just thinking today looks like the two of you could be brothers. My buddy Ross Hausman. Um, I can't remember what his handle is on, on hunting beast, but, um, yeah. But the two of you guys, Iowa. yeah, yeah, Iowa guy, you guys look okay. like you could be related. So I want to look into that and see if there's something back there. <laughs> um, All right. But but point being, um, you have had this this tremendous amount of success, kind of hunting in this hunting beast style, like a lot of other folks have taken and and kind of shifted and made work for them. But I guess what is interesting to me to start out is what was your hunting like or your hunting journey like before that? So what was the pre-beast life for Joe in your hunting world like? Sure. Yeah. So my hunting started like a lot of people. Um, my dad bought me a bow and stuck me in a tree and said, sit right here. And, uh, from there he kind of, uh, set me free on my own, taught me what a rub was, taught me what a trail was, kind of the basics. And you'd see a rub on a trail coming out of a, a swamp or something like that. And you'd set up and, uh, it got to a point as I got older, we would get, we started using trail cameras and we would get these trail cam pictures of these giants coming out of, uh, um, different swamps and stuff. And it, it got to the point where I noticed nobody in my family or locals weren't killing these big bucks, but we had them on our trail camera. And I thought there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a way to be killing these deer. Somebody out there has got to be killing these deer. How do you do it? So just like a lot of people, um, I started digging around on the internet I think I started on like a real tree form and uh, I started asking questions about swamp hunting and uh, someone said, Hey, you got to check out Dan and Fultz marsh bucks DVD. So I checked that out and, uh, I, and I believe my, my question on that real tree form was I've got a swamp. The bucks are in it. Do I go in the swamp or do I stay on the field edge? And, uh, I crawled down that rabbit hole and the, the answer was get in the swamp, <laughs> which I, I later learned isn't necessarily always the answer, but, uh, 
that that shot me to the hunting beast and uh, that was that was the beginning of the end right there yeah those dvds are the beginning of the end for a lot of folks those uh they are very helpful i i too uh enjoyed those so so you found dan and i from what i've heard you sent him some messages and he started answering your questions and and eventually you guys struck up a friendship how long has that been now that you've been kind of hunting with dan or using his methods and and things like that oh gosh that was i was a junior in high school so boy i'm not good with dates so i would say over 10 years now yeah we're getting old joe (laughs) yeah that's Uh, not good yeah uh what do you think then that switch was for you like for a lot of people, like for me, for sure, I had like a light switch moment where I went from hunting like my dad taught me, which is just kind of like you were talking about sitting in a, sitting for me it was sitting in a ground blind next to a trail and hope something walks by. Um, and eventually I had a light switch moment where all of a sudden things just started clicking and I started seeing more deer and then older deer and, and so on and so forth. Do you, is there anything like that that stands out for you where you realized, oh, wow, now I get it. So, yeah, that's a tricky one. So from the, in the very beginning, when I was watching those DVDs, I was like, holy cow, this makes sense. It was when he explains the stuff, it's all common sense. It's all very simple, but everyone really overthinks it. And I mean, especially if you, you come up reading a lot of the magazines that are out there today, they all kind of send you down a certain um, path. And then when you watch these DVDs, it's completely different than that. So that those were kind of aha moments all in themselves. Um, I would say in the last five years, I've really had some true aha moments. Um, I, I was, so there's a lot of guys, uh, I guess I'm kind of almost taking a shot at people when I say this, but there's a lot of guys online that they'll read Dan's word, take it for gold. And, uh, that's it. They don't think any further than that. And that was me hundred percent for gosh, uh, five years of the five years of being a hunting beast fan, I guess you could say, where I just took everything he said. I, I saw a lone tree standing out in the cattails. And I'm like, yep, there's a buck bed under there. And uh, when really it was doe bedding, you know, buck wasn't using it. So I, and there's a lot of different variables that can change different things, right? So when Dan says that there's a lone tree in the cattails, that might be a buck bed. That might be a buck bed. doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Mm-hmm. So in the last five years, I've really kind of stopped. I, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've gotten closer to some of these big ones. And when you get close, you kind of stop and you analyze and you look at what's going on around you. And you look where you made those mistakes. And it just that's where it really started clicking for me when, was when I took those hunting beast tactics and made them my own because where I hunt is different than where Dan hunts or where, uh, where you hunt in Michigan, stuff like that. So that I would say is the biggest aha moment. Yeah. So I thinking for myself. Yeah. That's a good point. Do you feel like there's anything now that you can point to now that you've applied this to your own hunting and you've had these aha moments that you do different than Dan now where he would be like, Joe's kind of crazy, but this is what he does. And now you've found it works for you. Boy, no, I I don't think so. I think if I told him what I was doing and why I was doing it, he would say, "Yep, makes sense." Is there anything or, or, is there anything that he does that you wouldn't want to do? Well, that you tried and didn't work out or didn't like it so much or you think that maybe you've got a slightly better angle on it? Sure. Um when what I guess what the example I have is when we were hunting Michigan together, we were giving each other grief. It was in one of the videos and uh, he kept seeing the bucks pop up in a certain corner of one of the fields and there was a valley the field was up on top and there was a valley and he said based on the map he said the deer have to be coming out of that spot and then uh tim our camera guy was seeing them come out of the other corner of the field and i I remember there was kind of a bowl back in the little other corner of the field 
And I'm like, man, they've got to be coming up out of that bowl. And that, that's why we're missing the game. And I, I remember we argued about it and uh, it was in the, in the videos and it was kind of funny. And uh, so it was just nothing major, just little piddly stuff, you know, in the moment type yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, so what about some of those, um, some of those specific things when it comes to swamps? That's one of those situations that I deal with a lot myself. So I'm particularly interested. Once you have those, those initial, I have the same exact things that you talked about work. Okay. We got this swamp and a lot of whitetail media out there over the last 10, 20 years has talked about if you've got a great swamp, you should leave it untouched. You know, don't go in there. That's the sanctuary. Don't mess with it. And so for a long time, I was afraid to like get in there and screw it up. And then you start hearing about more aggressive tactics like Dan's or other people's and you start seeing there's this other world. How did you start uh, thinking through that? And where have you settled now and the different things you think about when deciding when to push into something like that versus when to be a little more careful? Yeah, so... Where I started with that, um, I guess, was another lesson from Dan. He, he said, if you don't know what you're doing in a swamp, start by following around their tracks in the winter. And that's exactly what I did. I started looking for the biggest tracks I could find and just started following them around. And they would kind of lead me from bedding area to bedding area to bedding area. And then I could make sense of where those bedding areas were. Um, I would even pick up sheds in them sometimes. That way I could kind of confirm it. Um, stuff like that. Then um, as time progressed, I would – the mistakes I kept making – I made. I mean I've made tons of mistakes um, – was I would hunt those bedding areas. Gosh, I would hunt it five nights in a row, that same bedding area, and I would kind of just adjust 20 yards every time or something along those lines, and that wasn't working. That was too much pressure. Um, so I guess that, that was kind of the beginning of it. As I progressed and learned, I've learned – so for example, say you've got a swamp, whether it's public or private, and there's almost no pressure, and you can hunt the field edge. I would almost say, if you know that buck that you're after is going to be in there, I would say hunt that field edge, but only hunt it when it's appropriate. If you're hunting it all the time, that buck's going to learn that you're sitting in that field edge. He's going to learn that it's danger, that sort of thing. Um, so sometimes you don't necessarily want to be diving into that swamp. Now, if you're dealing with pressure, like a particular swamp I was hunting this year, um, people were, they would go like 20 yards into the swamp and set up. That was their swamp hunting. So then I had to dig, I had to dive in quite a bit deeper to get ahead of those people. The deer started learning that that 20 yard inside the swamp zone was danger. So I had to dive in quite a bit deeper. So it really is circumstantial. It really, and, and another thing too, it depends. Do you have a, a tamarack cedar swamp? Do you have a marsh swamp? Um, like down by Dan, his marshes, you know exactly where the beds are. So why not get close to them? Um, a lot of your cedar swamps, you don't know exactly where they're bedding. Um, you know, he might be 40 yards this way, 50 yards that way, and that can completely ruin the whole game for you if you're not set up on the right trail. So sometimes you want to find bottlenecks as well in a situation like that. So it really, really depends. Talk to me about this swamp bedding, because one of the things that I'm always trying to do is you find something that sure, sure as hell looks like, okay, this has got to be, this is a big isolated bed on an island out there or a point into a swamp, and it kind of has all the boxes checked. But then you start wondering, okay how do I tie this to, you know, a specific buck or how do I take it to that next point when you start learning how a buck is using that bed? What do you do or how do you start thinking about a bed after you've found it once you're getting towards hunting season? Like what's the next step for you? So if I've, if I found a specific bed, the biggest thing to do is to absolutely leave it alone. Um, if trail cameras are, this is another thing I've learned in the last five years because I was always that anxious wired kid that wanted to run trail cameras all the time, but leave your trail cameras out of there. If you can monitor 
that bedding area from afar. And what I mean that if you've got a swamp with a field across the road from it or something or a field next to it, if you can monitor that food source rather than getting up in there to confirm that that deer is in there, that's what I would personally suggest doing. Um, the trail cameras are just so dangerous because you're sticking your scent in there and those those bigger mature deer, one you stick your scent in there one time and that can booger them. Um, so I guess just surveilling from afar, we, we can deer shine in Wisconsin. I don't know if you, can you guys do that in Michigan? No, I think, I feel like I looked in this and there were some weird things about it. Like certain times of the year you can, and certain times you can't. I think maybe 15 days before the hunting season, you have to stop doing uh-huh. it. It's something like that. Okay. But shining is a huge one for us, Um, particularly in the summer. They start towards the end of summer, they get shined enough where they kind of start getting edgy. But you at least can figure out if they're coming out of that particular bedding area based on where they're feeding. And a lot of that stuff is stuff that you'll learn over many, many years of hunting that bedding area versus watching that field, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I know you do a lot of hunting specific deer. So yeah. What is there anything else you're doing when trying to tie a specific deer to a specific bed other than just what you said? Observe the food sources if you can. But as you know, I mean, there's a lot of situations where you can see a little bit of one field, but the rest of his territory, you have no idea what he's doing. How else do you try to say, okay, yeah, I think that buck is using this bed? Because that, you know, I feel like is is so up in the air unless you see it actually use it once. Yeah, that, that is very true. And a lot of times you hunt that bed and, and he's not there or there's a different deer in there. Um, that For me, that comes down, I guess, to backpedal a little bit. Where I hunt, if you have a mature deer, a, a four-year-old or older, his sign looks completely different than any of the two or three-year-olds that are running around. So in a situation like that, if you can't, if you think he might be in a certain area, when you start getting closer to that area, you start watching for tracks and rubs and scrapes and those basic um types of sign that you would read and you'll you should be able to tell if he's in that area for the most part would be i guess my just feet on the ground um and then set up right away don't don't wait till tomorrow yeah what would you say that older buck i mean how, when you say that older buck sign is just so different than like a two-year-old or a three-year-old what do you mean by that uh just higher rubs and bigger tracks okay um and, and I guess how they move through the woods to it, it looks a little different. It's, and that's one of those things that's just, it's hard to explain over a, over a call. You almost have to see it. I know the maps, maps are helpful. I, I heard one example you were talking about of this where in it, when you said this, it, it was, it was something I could recognize in myself, my earlier self as well. You said in some other conversation I was listening to, you were talking about how a lot of guys will look at a swamp or some piece of cover, and then they'll look at the neighboring food source and they'll think that there's a buck in that cover or there's a buck in that swamp at point A, and he wants to go to point B, which is the food source. And so we just assume, okay, he's going to go straight from point A, the shortest route to point B, like a straight line from there to there. And oftentimes we think about, okay, how do we get in between there and there? But what you had seen and what I've seen too is that oftentimes they're going to take a much more uh, strategic route where they'll come in at an angle and then parallel the field or come into it so they come in downwind or into a low spot or, or something for some reason different than just point A to point B. Um, am I accurate in describing that thought from you? And then number two, what are some other things like that that you found as far as how these mature bucks just move different? 
Yeah. So, yeah, I would say you're absolutely correct. And it, sometimes they just move from point A to point B. But I've seen it a lot where, say, you've got a swamp. They're they're cutting into that swamp where they know they're not going to encounter humans because, I mean, swamp edges, field edges just get hammered with human scent. Um, so they're, they're, it seems like they're finding the best place to cut in where they know they're not going to be ambushed, even if it's in the dark, because sometimes running, you can run a trail cam, run trail cameras all up and down a field edge to try and figure out where a buck's cutting in. And that's something that's always been really hard for me is figuring out where they're cutting into the swamp. But then when they get in the swamp, they know where they want to go and they'll, I mean, they'll travel. I've seen them travel a half mile through swamp when they could have just cut in, in the field and they were, I don't know, a hundred yards in from the edge of the field. They, They take the long way for safety. I think. Do you think that's when you say safety, you think it's like a wind thing or is it, what is it? Yeah, I, I think it could be that too. Um, that, that's a tough one because I really don't have any way to confirm. I haven't seen it enough times to um, confirm that it's a wind thing. I feel like they're they're cutting in the places that I have found them cutting in. It's kind of your overlooked spot. You know, you'll find where they're cutting in and you'll think, boy, I've never, never thought about hunting that spot. So I think, I think it's more based on that human intrusion and scent on the ground i I could be wrong on that yeah i mean that that thing right there trying to figure out how they come back into cover back into a bed i feel is is such a tricky one especially these big old bucks that so often are going back in there before daylight even and so if you're trying to pull off that morning hunt and knowing how they're getting back in there you have to not only think about whatever weird route they're taking in based off of wind based off cover based off what you're doing but then also when are they going to do it how can you get in there um that one always keeps me up in the middle of the night trying to think it through in in 2019 so last year i think you pulled off a smoking hunt just like that where you pegged exactly where you thought this buck was going to go into bed and he bedded right underneath you how did you do that (laughs) how did you how did you pull that off because that was that was an early season morning hunt and you you baby roofed it you basically pointed your bat in the stands and said you're going to hit the home run right there and then you did it (laughs) sure yeah so that one to rewind that one really goes back to when i was gosh um 12 years old when I started hunting. Um, that's a spot that I hunted since I was 12. Um, that particular spot I've hunted in so many different ways. Um, and, and just to describe it for people, it's, it's farm country. There's really no swamp around, but that particular spot, I've tried so many different things from sneaking up close to the edge of that woods and hunting it at night. I've, um, I've shot deer out of that bed with the gun by jumping them up and shooting. Um, I I've tried kind of catching them coming across the field, sitting in the corn row and had them catch me drawing to that bed. And I've tried everything and I've had some giants. I've actually, there's some footage out there that I have. I think it's on Dan's Farm Country DVD where I actually stuck a camera up in the tree over the top of that bed. And I've got some pretty decent footage of, there. I think in the video, there's just one specific buck multiple times. Um, But over the years, there's been some slobs in that specific little spot. Can you describe uh, that specific spot? Sorry to interrupt, but I just feel like if this is this is a spot that bucks keep bedding over and over and over again, it's like a slam dunk buck bed. I feel like it'd be really helpful to understand the details of why this spot's such a good buck bed. Yeah, so it's uh, basically if you can picture two fields side by side with a drainage ditch going in between them, and then the drainage ditch leads into a little point of woods that's maybe. Um, that point is maybe only, uh, 20 yards wide by 50 yards long. And then that little point of woods 
turns into like a bigger one acre woods. And they like to bet on that little point of woods with, uh, the, they actually like the, the wind at their back. Um, and if the, if there's no crops that where they're sitting, they can actually see the road. So anybody coming at them, they can see them coming at them and anybody coming from behind them, they can smell them from coming behind them. Um, th- does that paint the picture? I guess yes. before I go on. Yes, definitely. Okay. And what's nice is, um, over the years, I mean, I've hunted both parts of the woods morning and night, and uh, it seems like the bigger, more mature deer are always in the point of the woods. The the bigger one-acre piece of woods, sometimes you get some does and some smaller bucks in there, um, but the, the big boys hang out right in that point of woods, and it's it's nice and tight and small where if you get up in the right tree, you can shoot that whole thing, and I've seen it time and time again where when you set up in the morning, even if they do bed down before light, they're eventually going to get up and kind of stage around and and sometimes, I mean, if that happens, he moves 15 yards. That's all you need to get your shot. So that's in that scenario, that's what I was banking on. Um, so basically, the night before I shot this deer, um, I had I was hunting. Uh, how do I describe it? 200 yards across the field, basically. And uh, I was getting down early because I blew some other deer out of a field, and I wanted to try and make a move on them. Um, but I was getting down early, and as I actually had my, uh, I was using the um, tethered platform, and as I slung it down the tree. I hit something and it made a loud clank and I saw him go tearing off back to that little point. And I, and I felt very confident because he didn't know what I was in the tree. My wind wasn't blowing at him. All he heard was a clank. And it's not like he heard a clank looked up and then he had, you know, he had sound and vision. He heard that clank and took off just immediately. So I felt like he wasn't spooked very hard. He just heard something he didn't like and got out of there. So I felt like I could come in from the other direction to this little point. Um, I basically what I did from the road, I walked through standing corn and then straight to a tree. I just picked a, picked a tree that I felt like in the dark would cover most of that bedding and got as high as I possibly could. The reason for that is because I wanted to get my scent out over the top of the corn. I felt like if I was too too low, it could swirl down in the corn. So I got as high as I possibly could, and uh, he came laid down below me. And uh, what actually ended up happening was in the dark, I heard one go. There's the main bed that I've gotten the trail cam pictures of all the deer on. I heard one go to that bed. And then I, in the moonlight, I saw the the target buck bed down right below me, and I could kind of see him in my binoculars in the moonlight. And I didn't know of any bigger deer um, in the area that were substantially bigger than the one that was below me. So it, it got just light enough. I flipped on the GoPro, and I, I was scanning kind of in the grass and the brush on the right side of me on the on the other bed, the primary bed. And I didn't see the other buck. I turned, put the camera on the on the buck I shot shot him and then actually a big boy jumped up out of the main bed he was like he was scratching 150 inches so uh. that's that's one of my lessons learned for the season is i should have been more patient and just um waited to see what that was but we'll see this year's corn on both sides of that ditch so that's going to be huge nice. they, they like i guess i should explain if there's alfalfa on both sides or either sides of the ditch you got people driving by with atvs people walking their dogs whereas when you have corn on both sides of the ditch there's nobody in there so all summer long they're left alone so it makes a makes a big difference. That's nice. So we'll see. Maybe he'll be back. So you, uh, I want to make sure I understand why you decide to move to that specific location. I, I think I understand it, but for everyone listening, basically, you you spooked him that night before, and you saw him run back to that point. And so, because you saw he headed back that way, the assumption was okay. That's probably where he came from. If he's heading back to safety after getting spooked, he probably came from this point and. From previous history, you knew that in that point there was this bed, which then told you, okay, that buck's bedded there probably, so I'm going to take the swing at him tomorrow, right? Exactly, yep. And now, 
a lot of times when we say bed, a lot of people are looking for, hey, he beds right tight up against this one tree. That's where he is every single time. And the bedding in there, it shifts around a little bit. It can be 20 yards this way, 20 yards that way. So it's it's not exact. It's not like I was staring at one specific spot, but you're exactly correct. Yeah. So here's another thing. We I've talked to a lot of different people who've talked about identifying buck bedding areas, identifying buck beds. Um you know, we've seen the DVDs where Dan walks through the different things he notices as buck sign of a buck bed. But what can you describe, like, for you in your mind, the key things that you look at to help you pinpoint, okay, yes, this is a buck bed, or yes, this is a buck bedding area? Maybe just give a few examples and different scenarios just for people that maybe aren't as familiar. Sure. So, I guess I would say I do it kind of backwards from a lot of people. I find the deer and then kind of work my work my way back through scouting and glassing and trail cameras to where they are to figure out where they are. It's not too often that I'm scouting looking for a specific bed because all too often these, these big ones don't leave big sign right in their bedding. Like this, this bedding area where I shot this buck out of in this point, there were no rubs. Um, I, I mean, I crawled all over in there just to look, I was curious. There were no rubs from that bigger deer in there. Um, there, there were rubs from the deer I shot. You can tell he's a little bit younger of a deer, but there was nothing that really jumped out. Um, but back to your question, it really, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm always looking for beds. I'm more so looking for the bedding area. Um, in Dan's situations, you have that one little high spot in the cattails. I know I'm not, I guess now I'm kind of being repetitive, but you've got that high spot. So, you know, Hey, that's that, but I'm, I'm looking for bedding areas, whether they be thick and overlooked or high stem count, um, areas or, um, areas that aren't going to get a lot of human intrusion. That's something I'm always thinking about is where, where is your average guy going? And that's exactly where the deer are not going to be, or the, the mature deer are not going to be. Um, I, I probably didn't answer that question in a very good way, but it's, it's, it's tricky one to, to answer without showing people. Yeah. No, I, I, another, another thing I'll add is a lot of times I'll jump a deer right out of a bed and then, Hey, I know he hung out there or he bedded in that spot at this time of the year. And then the next year I'll go hunt that bedding area knowing that that he uses that. Yeah. So it, it, it's a tricky one. But. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever do that on purpose in season? I know the, some guys like the bump and dump idea. Whenever you're going into a new place, do you ever get purposefully aggressive, purposefully aggressive or so aggressive that you'll go in there thinking, yeah, I might bump him out. But if I do that, I know exactly where he's bedded and I can make a play tomorrow or, or something like that. Yeah, I've done that, but I can't, I can't think back to any success. But I, I know other people have had success with it, so I've definitely – I'd rather be aggressive in a new area than be just out of the game the whole time. So I've done that, but I, I can't say I've had success around it. Yeah. Have you ever done, like, the wind bumping thing that Dan does sometimes? Uh, not in particular, no. What, what then would you say when you're – let's talk morning hunts in particular because those are – like I mentioned, especially, you know, earlier in the season or later in the season can be harder to pull off. How how do a lot of your morning hunts look like at those times of year when some guys say don't hunt mornings at all at that part of the season because they're a little bit higher risk? Uh, they can just be a little more tricky. Is it is it going to be something just like the scenario you already outlined in that hunt or are there some other rules or kind of playbooks that you that you follow? So that's I mean, that would be what I would go for personally. Um, but a lot of the deer I've killed in the morning were, boy, a lot of them, they were coming in and I don't know if it was the whole J hook factor where they're, they're trying to come in and win their, their bed, 
but a lot of the deer I've killed in the morning were at very first light. I could, I could see, I'm thinking of two of them right now that I could see, I could see them in front of me before legal light. And, uh, eventually they worked their way around and I was able to get a shot on both of the deer. I'm thinking of one of them being November, one of them being, um, late season, actually two of them being late season. Usually I'm catching them in the bedding and working around. Um, a lot of times they know something is up, but they can't figure it out. And they, they seem to just stall and try and figure out what's going on. And usually it gets light and it's too late. Yeah. How early are you getting in there on those kinds of hunts? I think if I remember right, that, that hunt we were just talking about, you were in there at least an hour beforehand. Is that right? Yeah. I want to be set up and sit in the dark quietly for an hour. So probably, I mean, if it takes you, I mean, give yourself extra time and be at the base of the tree. Um, two hours before it's going to get light. Yeah. And would you do a hunt like that on any random day or would it have to be, you know, a special set of circumstances? Like you saw the buck and you pinpoint where you thought he was bedding or uh, some kind of conditions coming through a, a cold front or I don't know, something like that that makes you think that, you know, tomorrow morning is going to be a special morning. I guess that really depends upon the circumstances. Um, for the most part, like I'm not, I'm not like a, the kind of guy that reads the moon just because I hunt when I can hunt. I can't hunt all the time. Um, obviously the wind has to work. The wind is huge. I mean, you got to get that wind away from them. Um, like if, if you can create an obstacle, if you have an obstacle, like in this particular situation, the, this deer coming in was not going to J hook me because he would have to walk crossways through the cornrows. And I just didn't see a buck every morning walking for the whole summer. I just couldn't picture because it was early season. I couldn't picture a buck walking through the corner rows crossways. So that's a big thing is just getting that wind away from them. Yeah. Would, would be, yeah. I don't know if that answers that question, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that early season, um, what are you doing for the evening hunts? How are you? I think I remember hearing you talk about, there was some discussion you're having about scouting and just how when it comes to early season scouting, oftentimes you're doing all this scouting leading up to the first hunt and the first hunt or two, and then it's all out the window because things have changed and then you have to reassess and adjust after that pressure. Um, is that, did I interpret that right? Is that, is that how you approach things yeah. early on? Yeah, very much so because you can have something all figured out and uh, the night before the season or the, the day of the season, somebody goes in and sets up wrong and has their wind blowing right into the bedding area of the deer after, and then everything changes. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are you doing leading up to the season then? What's that early season scouting, those final pieces of the puzzle look like? Yeah. So for, for summer scouting, um, it's a lot of running cameras in places that, that don't intrude. It's a lot of um, glassing, sitting back and glassing. Um, one, one secret that my buddies and I joke about, I guess that isn't that big of a secret, but if you can, for glassing, if you can get out of your truck and just walk one fence line back, you're going to see so many more deer than the guys driving around. I, I recognize a lot of the trucks that are always driving around in the summer glassing and they never get out of their truck. And you talk to some of them, they're like, Hey, I saw a 20 doe last night. And I'm like, did you see any antlers? And they're always like, Nope. And meanwhile, I was one fence line back watching two booners, you know, I had that one year, which is why I say that. That's and that's point. So easy, but yeah. Do you, when it comes to that, that glassing, how often, I feel like this is one of those things that we hear a lot about. We know like we should do, we should glass, we should do, we should scout more. We should spend more time in the woods learning these places. But I think there's like a disconnect between knowing you should do that and what doing that actually entails. And I was talking to my buddy Andy about this last summer, and I, I asked him, you know, 
when you say you're doing this, whatever it was, like some kind of scout, he's like, how many times are you actually doing that? And he said something like, well, I don't know, two, three times every week for months leading up to the season or something like that. Um, yeah. When you say you're doing this early season scouting or, or something like that, you know, is this a once a week thing? Is this, I mean, are you, is it once just before the season? Just help flesh what that actually looks like. I'm guessing it's more than just once. No, that, that's about correct. I would say it's like, I would almost say it's three to four times a week. I don't know how the, having the little guy is going to impact that, but <laughs> three to four times a week. And then that, that week before I always try to adjust my work schedule to be able to glass every single night and see if I can get a solid pattern on something. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's accurate. So what happened last year? What was the, what was opening night like last year for you? Yeah. So last year I had a specific buck, um, that I was watching and he was, he was moving through a spot. I was glassing him, I should say. And he was moving through a spot and there was a small little window that you could catch him moving through. I would say I was watching, I don't know, a half mile back. And the, the window that you had to catch him moving through was like 20 yards wide. So you had to just stare with your eye through the spotting scope and you would catch him at very last light. So, and that's another thing, a huge tip about glassing. Most of the glassing I do is fairly pointless until that last 10 minutes of light or so. Um, but anyways, I was, I was watching this specific deer and, uh, then opening night came along, the wind was completely wrong. So I literally, um, just kept driving around the block watching to see what was going to happen in this particular spot. And, uh, nobody was in any of the parking lots and I thought I was good. And then it was, it was getting late where you, you wouldn't, I was going to skip the night hunt and just wait and then move in the next day. And, uh, and then suddenly one guy pulled up and headed back with his wind blowing straight into the bedding area. So I dove in, um, again it was late i dove in kind of put my wind a little off to just kind of give it a try but i, I knew it kind of screwed up everything but i, I was still going to try it because it, the spot was blown at that point and what happened nothing <laughs> a little box <laughs> nothing yeah so then it was back to square one after that you it probably was off and moved to either different timing as far as when he moved or he adjusted were you able to catch eyes on him or anything else after that yeah yeah, so he actually he adjusted. I actually in the particular swamp I was running a, a number of wireless trail cameras, which I'm st- I'm not a big fan of doing that. I probably won't do that anymore because it seems like the deer smell something that isn't right, and they they start mm-hmm. avoiding those those trails with the cameras on them. But mm-hmm. I was running cameras in this particular swamp, and uh, at one point, I think it gosh, I think it was uh, I don't know a few days later, I caught him going. I got a picture of him um, going back to bed a specific buck going back to bed. And I think it was like 20 minutes before light. So I knew he was really close and uh, it was going to rain that afternoon. So I ran that morning, I ran into the swamp and I tried to follow through the swamp where that deer walked. Cause in the swamp, you can kind of see where there, where the mud gets pulled up onto the cattails. So I tried to follow my way back to where he went. Cause I knew it was going to be in kind of one of two clusters. And uh, then the wind was just off that night. So I went back home, grabbed all my gear, got in there, got set up. And then the wind just started swirling. So I think that boogered him completely that night and that was where that was where i got frustrated and kind of switched gears and started looking at farm country um there was a different deer in the area that i half-heartedly paid attention to he was a giant and some dude shot him um over a bean or i think it was corner bean beans he shot him over a bean field opening night on public land and i was like shoot i need to switch gears get out of the swamp i'm, I'm diving too deep i'm making this too hard and uh, that's what led me to the farm farmland that's an interesting point. I, I, that's another thing that I've heard you t- say before is is sometimes 
the need to just completely switch up your strategy. Like if you're getting frustrated or if this one deer, this one thing is not working in a swamp, then switch to the farm or switch to hill country or switch to something else. Why, why do you recommend that kind of full scale pivot sometimes? Sure. So that's when I would say I kind of learned from Andy. I remember on a podcast, your podcast, actually, I believe Andy was talking about how when he goes on these out-of-state trips, he, I, I remember him saying the deer are there. You just have to figure out where they are. And we don't have a ridiculous amount of deer. So like in that scenario, I was pounding around in the swamps and they were hard, most of the deer were hardly in the swamps. So then when I saw this guy shoot this other buck and post it up, he posted it up on a, on a rut report page it kind of brought me to the realization this buck was right under my nose in the crop fields, a fully mature big buck in the crop field. So you, you just, you have to, the deer are there. You have to find where they are. What, what are they feeding on? Um, in the, I guess what I'm learning is in the early season, this particular swamp, the deer aren't pushed into there yet. They don't need to be in there yet um, because the pressure isn't hyped up enough. So really finding where they are. I don't I, I can't say it enough. It's that simple, I guess. It's funny as you're saying that, um, it makes me think about the, I don't know what you call it, like the manic state I'm in during the hunting season when I'm trying to think through all those same things. And I'm thinking, you know, are they in this stuff or no, they're in a totally different area or what are they doing or what's wrong here? I'm constantly, you know, thinking over, thinking, second guessing, texting buddies, seeing what they're seeing, trying to apply that to what's going on by me. Uh, what are you like during this season? I mean, what's are, is this shit going through your mind 24 hours a day or can you turn it off or how do you handle that? Yeah, no, it, it is definitely 24 hours a day. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I remember and what happened too. So in last year it was 2019 In 2018, I ended up eating my tag because I chased a specific buck around all year. And I remember in the, um, the, the last week, the last two weeks of the season in 2018, I went, just absolute crazy. I was manic. I remember I was hardly sleeping because I because we could shine for, till ten o'clock, and in the winter, ten o'clock is really late. So I was shi- I was shining like crazy, just trying to catch a buck coming out of a swamp, just going nuts. And then I remember in uh, at the beginning of 2019, I'm like, if I can apply that attitude and that mentality to the the first, because I took the first week of vacation for 2019, I'm like, if I can have that same attitude and that same crazy. I wonder what's going to happen. So I, I went crazy <laughs> that first week. And just like you said, yeah, it eats you up. How do you, I do the, I do the same thing when it comes to one buck, I get one buck in my mind and it's usually the death of me. And it's usually on like one small little property where I'm super limited and I end up getting hung up on them though and throw all these other things out the door because I'm just trying to get that one. Um, how uh, how do you handle just that? Because I know I've heard you say in the past that you end up hunting specific bucks a lot. Do you? Where's your head at? Some years I'm thinking like ah, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then the next year just happens again. What about you? Yeah, so I guess to flip back on you real quick before I answer it, part of the problem I run into is we don't. I mean, we don't have a crazy amount of deer to go after which is why I'm so obsessed with that one deer. I mean, is that the same for you or do you have a fair amount of good deer you can go after? So it is a little more like you in that I've, I've got usually just a couple small properties that usually only have like one good deer for sure. Maybe two on like the best years. Um, some years what I, what I usually have is like one or two decent local spots. And then I travel like out of state, um, to a bunch of different places. So my problem is probably that I don't have enough good local spots to give me tons of options. That, that could certainly be part of it. 
Right, right. And then the, the thing you run into doing, which I did forever, is you overhunt the heck out of them and blow the deer out of there anyways. Mm-hmm. That I've done way too many times. Um, the big biggest thing I've learned with that is to just kind of sit back and be patient. Um, and sometimes you just you don't even hunt. You sit back and glass. Or if, if the wind's completely wrong, you don't even hunt because you, you are so limited um, with that one specific deer. And then sometimes you just have to get aggressive. If you like I had one deer that I was chasing for a while. Um, I, I posted up pictures of him on Instagram for people that follow me. He had double drop times, just trash everywhere. Yeah, I've seen that and, one. Uh, yeah, he's he's a freak. And I could not figure out what that deer was doing. So I just dove in and I ended up jumping him up. But that was when I was we, – we've all got those deer where we say if uh, if I had known then what I know now, that deer would be dead. And that, that in that particular case, when I jumped that deer up, I went and did everything wrong. I was a young, um, crazy kid that was excited and overhunted it. Um, but just sitting back and being patient and calculated and knowing when to and when not to move in. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. What are some of those things for you that mean it's time to move in? Like what are the green light signs for you to, to swing for the fences? Sure. So just seeing them shining um, seeing him catching him moving across the field. Like I did with this in this particular situation with the one I killed that year. Um, sometimes a rumor, I'll hear a rumor from somebody. Um, yeah, the the basics, shining trail cameras, a a visual, just seeing them. So talk, let's talk a little more about the shining thing. Um, because, because I know that I've heard from Wisconsin, 
a lot of folks seem to do that since it's it's legal there um and, and probably plenty more states too that i just don't know um how wide a net do you cast i guess you could even apply this to you know glassing from afar too you know if you think that there's a buck in a certain area or maybe it's just a property of permission on a piece of public that you can hunt like how wide a zone do you go outside of that core where you think something's happening with your either glassing or shining at night like what's that circumference to give you a circumference it would be tricky i would say from the moment i turn the spotlight on till the moment i turn it off and head back to my house it's usually only like a half hour shining mission so i'm just checking spots i'm checking fields um there's certain little spots where the some of the more maturity or you can actually catch them in little crevices moving through out to food um the, the the big deer i've learned too i mean they'll eat right on the edge of a field and uh, when they hear your car coming down the road they'll they'll cross the road before you even get there and cut back in the cover. I've, yeah. I've tried a lot of different things from driving fast and flicking on the light to see just different things like that. I've learned over time. Um, yeah. I, um, this isn't related to shining, but when it comes to glassing, I do a lot of the truck driving stuff too. And, um, I went from having a silver truck to a black truck. And for some reason I found that the black truck spooked deer a whole lot more. <laughs> so really? in the future, I, I just got a new truck and it's black again. I guess I didn't think that one through, but, um, is it, do you think it could be louder exhaust or louder tires or something? Sounds different. That's possible. That's possible too. I don't, I can't say that I recall it being dramatically different, but it's certainly possible. Um, but for whatever reason, it was just, it was dramatic. I used to be able to get away with, you know, being a couple hundred yards away and these bucks, you know, would be okay. I don't know, 300, 400 yards out there at the back of a field. But with the new truck that I got, this was, I don't know, six years ago when I got that one, um, it just went, I would pull up, stop and bam, they're gone. So I, like you were saying, I started trying all sorts of different things. I would just do the, do the roll by. So you see them, you think, oh, that's a good buck, but instead of stopping, you just keep on driving and then you come around the block or something, or you do a turnaround and then you just, then you creep just where you can get and look past the trees or something and see them. Um, yeah, it's interesting trying to do those different things. What about, what about, this is another one I always wonder about, cause you described how just getting off the road and getting back one fence where you can see so much more. I constantly have this inner debate in the summer when I'm thinking, okay, I could either do that, but I'm committed to that one field and I'm stuck, and that's all I'm going to see is this one spot. Or I can cover a ton of ground in a much bigger space and check off, you know, a whole lot more potential yes/no type of areas. Like, okay, that's where he is, that's where he's not, that kind of thing. Um, do you ever do the? I guess what am I trying to say is, do you always commit to one spot like that and get back off the road, or do you sometimes try to cover a bunch of stuff on the car, or how do you balance those two things if you do both? Yeah, I, I would say my glassing is kind of a, there's always a little tweak almost every night, a little adjustment until I do lock onto a certain deer, and then I'll sit it time and time again. Now with the glassing, I, I would say I treat it just like hunting, where um, when you're walking, you want to make sure your wind is not blowing into wherever they're coming out of. Um, when you're, uh, where you're walking, you don't, if you're sitting and glassing in a spot that two hours later, the deer are going to come through and smell where you sat there and glassed, I wouldn't glass there. I mean, I'm trying to glass in spots where it's it might be uh, along a hiking trail or along a tractor lane where there's human scent anyways i'm trying to not make it obvious not make it obvious to these deer that they're being watched i've made that mistake before where i would sit up on top of a hill and 
a half hour later after I left, they walked right where I was on top of that hill and they realized something's up and deer season's on. Right. Exactly. There's no, they don't know you're not hunting yet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tricky one. Trying to figure out, uh, one of that, one of those light switch things for me was understanding the value of observing and learning and scouting and how that's just as important, if not more so than actual hunt hunts, you know, do you do, do you do that with observation stand kind of hunts at all? A a little bit. Yeah. Yep. I I would say a little bit. I know, I know some guys will go really, really light. So just observation stands until they get the exact intel they need. And then they get super aggressive with it. And they, they, they just strike hard then, but most of their season is observe, 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 and then strike hard. And then there's other guys who have, and, and maybe this is how you might describe Dan, maybe not, but he, you would say that they have a whole bunch of good spots scouted out and then they just go hard in this one and then blow it up or kill. They go hard in the next one, blow it up or kill hard in the next one, blow it up or kill. How would you describe your, like if I had, if you had to generically describe your approach in that way, what would yours be? Well, I think, it, I think it would be a combination of both. If for those nights when I get frustrated, and I don't know where to set up. I'll, I'll fall back on old bedding areas and just go for broke. Um, and then there's those other times where I'm, I feel like I'm onto a specific deer where I'll sit back and watch and then move in and pick the cherry, so to speak. Yeah. Um, with that late muzzleloader buck that you killed last year, is that a good example, a little bit of how you hunt one specific buck? Because I think if I remember right, you had history with that deer and you were kind of working on them. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That that was a deer I wanted to kill. There was one that was, one other one that was potentially in the area that I was more interested in, but I didn't know if it was alive yet. So I wasn't going to stack all my eggs in that basket. I knew this one was alive um, from a sighting, but I didn't know or from a trail cam picture actually is what it was. Um, but yeah. So, so can you walk me through then basically your whole experience with that deer and, and what ended up leading to you killing him eventually? Yeah. So that deer, I want to say it was 2017. He ended up being four years old based on all the pictures and history I had with him. But I, I got my, this one's kind of a confusing one to explain because I got my first picture ever of this deer. He always had a split G3 on the one side. And I got my first picture ever of him um, near one swamp, middle of the night. Um, and then that same winter when I got that picture of him, that same same time of the year, I also was getting pictures of him in a different swamp. Um, and that was kind of the end of that. And then 2018 rolled around, and uh, he popped back up in the main swamp where I hunted him. I'd love to give you the names of the swamp so I can make the story better, but I shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, um, keep that under wraps. But, Right. So he, he popped back up. Um, I chased him around a little bit. I was, I got pictures of him, um, in 2018 during the muzzleloader season, multiple mornings in a row coming back to, um, coming back to bed. And I was actually, I actually ended up shooting, uh, a 128 inch buck. I wasn't sure which buck it was. I just saw the rack on his head, but when I was hunting him in 2018, I ended up shooting a different one. Um, in that exact bedding area. Hey, so one quick and question, that, sorry to interrupt, but these cameras that you're picking up pictures of him going back to bed, what, what kind of camera setups were those? And, and I mean, like where, where were you setting these cameras up to get that kind of info? Just on trails and the cattails. So you, okay. So you're back in the swampy stuff. Yep. And, and a lot like that specific camera was not a wireless one. So I, uh, that Intel I received after everything happened. Okay. But I, but I still went 
it was actually right after everything happened. So I, and I still went and hunted it, hoping he would do it again and ended up shooting that other one. Okay. But with the with the one thing I'll say with those, so I've got wireless trail cameras now, and uh, I I keep getting pictures of them one time, and then I'll never get the picture again. And uh, this winter I had one where I got a picture of a new buck. He was looking right at the camera. I had the camera hidden well. And uh, then um, I went out in the snow to retrieve the camera. I, I had the one picture of him. And then when I retrieved the camera, he started literally just going around the back of the camera through some really thick stuff. The camera was kind of in a funnel, but he purpose you could he had a hell of a rub line going through some thick stuff, just avoiding that camera. And the one thing I noticed when I walked up to that camera, I have uh, like a python cable on it. As I was unstrapping it from the tree, I could smell the rubber from that python cable. So I and maybe I'm being a little crazy, but though i mean it's not every day there's that smell of rubber in the middle of a swamp like that right. so i don't know if that you know he's like something's not right about this it wasn't big enough of a danger to uh completely leave the swamp but it, it just bothered him so huh. something, something for people to consider yeah interesting okay so you've got this these cameras back there and the cattails you're getting a few pictures and this this is your muzzleloader season is in december or november when is it yeah it ended up landing at the beginning uh, I think it was the second week of December. I could be wrong on that. Okay. But it, it ended up being nice and late, which was good because then you've got the the cold weather working in your favor, and it landed right on that second rut, as people call it. I'm not a not an expert on all those phases and stuff, but it, when all the fawns come into heat, and I, I've done pretty well with uh, those fawns and those late does coming into heat over the years. But yeah, I uh, he he was actually the buck that I was catching in the summer, moving through, and he was the buck that that other guy kind of messed up. Um, and that was a buck I really wanted to chase around, but then obviously I filled my tag. So I just really kept tabs on him with trail cameras and I, the entire archery and gun season, I confirmed that he was still in that swamp, still holding up in there. And then, uh, gun season, I dove into their opening morning. Actually, my my cousin wanted to go along. So I took him in there and he actually, he had a nice eight point come through that he shot and he was pretty jacked about that because it's a little, little different style of hunting for him. Um, and then I think with all that commotion that morning, um, I don't know exactly what happened if he just he was still in there or moved over or what happened. But my plan was going to be with the muzzleloader was I was just going to work my way through that swamp kind of um, in a line morning after morning and catch him moving through. Um, so the, I, I took vacation. The, I want to say it was like the last five days of muzzleloader season. And that first morning I set up, didn't hear anything. It was horrible. There was like a, a half inch of ice. So as you went through there, it would break you break through and then smash your shins on the ice so it was horrible i'm glad i'm glad it ended quickly um so then i i hunted that morning and then i spent the whole day it's a huge swamp and i we had a fresh snow so i made an entire circle around that whole swamp took many hours to do just looking for i didn't know exactly what his track looked like but i was looking for a big track because again like i said there's not that many mature bucks in the area so if there was if i found a big track it was more than likely going to be him um i didn't find any that really piqued my interest so i went and uh I went and sat at the at the other swamp, the initial swamp where I got the very first photo of him just to watch the does come out and kind of just chill for the night and hang out and, and wait for the next morning and continue my strategy of just working through in the mornings. And uh, I, like I've said many times, I had all these does come out and I looked in the back of the field and I um, he actually he lost that split G3. He's got real short G2s. And I remember looking in the back of the field and seeing the really short G2s on uh, a big buck that looked out of place. And I was, I was my mind was blown and I shot him right there. Wow. So it was kind of a situation where sometimes it's just as helpful to know where he's not at than where he is, right? Being able to check yeah. something off is, is important too. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was uh, 
one of the things I talked about in the video, I don't know if you've seen that, that the hunting beast video of it on yeah. YouTube. Yep. And I, I was kind of telling Andy May, I'm like, yeah, I got lucky. And he's like, no, you didn't. He, he said to me, that's exactly what he's seen time after time is you get a deer that'll maybe go back to a certain area at a certain time of the year to check on a group of does and they'll, they'll do it year after year for a short little window. And he told me, he's like, you caught him in that window. And I was like, no kidding. So that was a big learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I've experienced the same kind of things. And one example was this buck that um, I only would see him show up in December and he showed up once a year he showed up once in December on December 5th or 6th or 7th, something like that in 2016. And then in 2017, he showed up once a little later in December. And then in 2018, he showed up back up on the farm much earlier. He showed up in early November and I had a bunch of close calls with him in early November, but then he disappeared again. But I kept thinking, man, if we get to that first week or so of December, you know, he seems to, that's when historically he's come back. And so I, I was hoping for that and was trying to do some long distance scouting. And lo and behold, I think it was December 5th, I think was the day or 8th, 5th or 8th. And uh, there he was, second rut kind of thing, just like you described. He was chasing a doe and uh, and I killed him that night. So, uh, so yeah, I've seen a lot of things like that too. It's, it's, it's very, it's very true. It's weird. It's weird that they have these kinds of annual cycles of sorts. Um, yep. But it's well, was that that big ten point that big I think it was a thick heavy ten point that you have for a lot you got it for like a lot of different profile pictures. Yeah, yeah, he was the, he's the the really big one in Michigan that I got a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, that thing is a tank. Yeah, yeah, I always wanted to kill that one. I, I never, I'll be honest, I never dove in deep enough to figure out how you killed him. Yeah, he's uh, he was he was uh, an unexpected buck. You don't see many like that around here, so that was it was right. cool. It worked out. Yeah, that was a beautiful deer. Yeah. Um, so, okay, that's kind of interesting. You've got a couple hunts last year that your past history in these places, years of studying them, years of scouting, led to you getting these kills, that early season, that late season buck. But then you've got these two hunts smack dab in the middle of that in Michigan and Ohio where you were hunting brand new places and you were able to kill a buck. And I think that's... I think last year your season was impressive regardless, but the fact that you've got two kills in that kind of scenario and then two kills in brand new spots, that, that makes it really interesting. Um, I can't, I mean, we can't have this conversation and not talk about your Michigan hunt, right? Um, right here in my, right here in my home state. Uh, do you want to talk to me about how you guys approached trying to break down your strategy there in Michigan? Um, I know you guys had tough conditions, a lot of different things like that, but, but walk me through some of the challenges and, and ahas as you guys broke things down over the course of that early season hunt. Sure. So with the, with the Michigan hunt, it started by just kind of reaching out to people and learning where the decent areas were, where people were killing um, different deer. And uh, we kind of ended up nailing down two different spots that were um, one was an hour north of camp and one was an hour south of camp. So kind of putting them two hours apart. Um, but what, the, the spot I ended up killing was a spot where a local guy said, hey, my buddy goes in there every year. He shoots a 100-inch buck every year. And uh, my thinking around that was if if somebody can go into a spot, in a public land spot, and shoot a 100-inch buck, buck in Michigan every year, that's where we need to be. That sounds great to me. Yeah, it's a good spot in Michigan so, if it's doing that. What's that? I said it's a good spot for around here if that's the case. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, did you know where it was? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so we dove into this particular spot. And uh, what it was to describe it is it was was kind of a high ridge, um, a high long ridge. And most of it was woods, but at kind of the one end of the ridge, there was a, a soybean field. And uh, usually the back of the ridge, there, there is an accessible trail that most people would come up and they would kind of um, get into the back where actually all the good bedding was. But what we ended up having was all that flooding. Uh, the flooding, I would say, put the water on that trail like belly, belly button deep when it was at its highest. You probably saw that in the videos. So it actually cut everybody off from coming in that one way. So we, we ran into all these deer out in this field. Actually, midday, we ran into some does in this bean field. And we're like, if, if this is going to be this simple, if these deer are going to be eating out here in the middle of the day, let's start by hunting the field. So we hunted the field edge. Um, that first night, Jake and I saw that two-and-a-half-year-old buck and that smaller buck out there. And uh, then we hunted the field edge a few more times, um, had a lot of different weird things happen. And uh, you could tell that our pressure was starting to affect the deer, so we decided we needed to work, start working our way into the cover not knowing exactly where the bedding was. And this is where that debate kind of came in that we had with, that I had with Dan. They were actually accessing the field in two different spots. They were kind of coming out of two different bedding areas. And I think what happened is we burned the bedding area where Dan had seen a big buck come out of. We hunted that. And then uh, we were starting to hunt the spot where I believe the deer were coming from. And uh, that first night when we dove in the cover, we had those guys come through, uh, rip down all our equipment, and we, we went further back in deep. And the biggest thing, I guess, if I could explain to a guy as to what we were looking for is as we headed back through the woods, it was very open. I mean, you could, I think you could see almost a hundred yards with, with the leaves on and it was very open like that. And we got to a point where it got really thick or, or high stem count. And, uh, right at the beginning of that really thick, we jumped up deer that took off. And I remember that bed was just wore to the dirt. And, uh, that was where we really started to slow things down. I, I remember, I was kind of going crazy, going fast, and Jake's like, "We got to slow down right here." I'm like, "Yeah, you're right." Yeah, Jake. And, Jake uh, was being a little bit of a, a backseat driver there. I thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it depends what the rules are, but I was cool with it. But you know, sometimes you get all fired up and uh, you, you go too deep. I do that way too often. That was, and I'm, I guess I could backpedal a little bit. There was our first night or second night. We hunted some uh, uh, fragments, I believe they were called. And uh, there was a buck that I just dove way too deep in on. The sign was so obvious, um, but I just dove way too deep. And that's, that's a huge thing. That, that's a benefit of me being able to hunt with Dan is I can have him say, hey, why the hell are you diving in so deep? That's stupid. <laughs> and you get it in your head real quick. But, uh, okay. So before we go any further, though, you got you to gotta help me understand that thought process in your head. Because that right there is one of like the big differentiators, I think, for a lot of people is is knowing when to when to keep going, when to stop. A lot of us are guilty of one going too far one of the either way. So a lot of us yeah. are so nervous to blow deer out. This is how I was for a long time. I was so worried yeah. to spook deer that I would never go far enough. And then you get the opposite where you want to be aggressive. You want to be aggressive. And so you do what you just described where you push in there so hard and, and blow everything out and you need someone to kind of knock you up the side of the head and say, whoa, what are you doing? Um, yes. Walk me through how you tried to do that or how Dan has maybe shown different situations where he said, hey, this is this is when you got to stop. Anything like that stand out that you could help us kind of illustrate it with? Yeah. So I, I get in that particular situation, um, boy, I, I, 
I guess just to say that he, he yelled at me, he's like, you, cause he'd seen me do it multiple times. And he's like, you, you don't have to dive in so deep. And I think I always had this growing up. I always had this mentality that I was going to outwork every other hunter in the area. And I was going to go deeper and I was going to go in spots where nobody was willing. And sometimes it's not, not that you make it too difficult. Right. Yeah. So it, if you have, if you can find a friend that's a better hunter than you and get them to go along with you. And I guess that's another tactic in and of itself. I've got a few buddies that I've literally just met because you start seeing them posting these big bucks on social media and you reach out to them and you develop a relationship and pretty soon you're scouting with them and you're learning things from them and they're learning things from you. And, uh, that's, that's huge. I've, there's a few kinks out of my system that have been worked out by Dan over the years saying, Hey, why are you doing that? And, uh, that, that's huge. You gotta be able to take that feedback. Yeah. The second set of eyes can, uh, can be super helpful, especially it's so easy to just, to see things the way you always see them, right? Right. You eventually just, you don't notice certain things because you've always kind of done it a certain way. Or when a new person comes in, all of a sudden something will stand out so easily that you just took for granted, right? I mean, yep. it's a great, a great point. Uh, to, to add on to that, I've got a, I've got a buddy, Jordan. Um, he's, he's one guy you should try and get on here. He, he's, he tries to be a, a little more silent, but I bet you could get him on here, but he's well, let's a, talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he's a strictly a swamp hunter. He only hunts from the ground. I, I talked him into buying a tree stand, but uh, I, I got to know him because he was posting these giants that he was killing in the cattails from the ground, and I, I kind of messaged him, like, what are you doing? And uh, we developed a relationship that way, and he came, he, came out and hunt, <clears throat> excuse me, he came out and scouted a spot with me on a buck that I was trying to figure out, and I, I remember we were hardly in the swamp, and the first thing he pointed out to me is you, you get in these swamps on these trails with the, the dogwood and the, just the... the I don't know, the vegetation that's not very big around. And if you look really close, these bucks, will, when they go through the, the dogwood and stuff, is so soft that they'll sometimes pull their antlers through the dogwood. And if you look, you can catch little nicks on the dogwood. And he was pointing out, he's like, see, you can tell he went down this trail because of all the nicks in the dogwood. And there's just these these tiny little nicks. And I was like, no kidding. And it, it was just, it's such a such a simple thing that I've, I've never seen. I've walked past it a thousand times. So I, I always wonder what sign I'm missing like that. But just that one little experience kind of changed the game for me because it's something I look for now. And it's something that I can add into my pack of yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So, okay. So you're working your way down this ridge and there's this transition from the open hardwoods to this thicker stem count. And I think that's, that's definitely an, an obvious change in habitat i'm going to start slowing down and right a lot of people okay now we get a change but then it's finding that spot within the spot that's always the real trick you know do you go right in the edge of it do you go 50 yards into it do you go until you see a rub or a scrape or a bed how do you how do you approach that and in this case you you had jake who kind of told you to tap the brakes but what are you thinking about as you move through there so shootability i guess is a big one for me i I mean, obviously, you don't want to go too far, be too short, but you also really need that spot where you can, when they do come through, you can get a shot. So we had the tree we ended up picking. We, we, we didn't go far in because when we looked at Onyx, you could tell that you couldn't really go much further before you were going to run, run out of that point and you were going to be into water. So we didn't want to go too far in. But then at that point, it was being able to shoot as much to the left and as much to the right as possible but also having in that situation, we had our wind blowing out over the water and kind of behind us at an angle and knowing where our wind was, because there was a point where if the deer would get too far to our right, they would wind us. So that was, that was kind of the situation with that. Okay. And so describe the spot you picked and, and what happened there. Yeah. So 
that particular spot, um, one thing that was interesting about it is we, we kind of were right in the bedding area. I wouldn't even say we were on the edge of it. We were right in it. And, uh, there were actually, uh, oak trees right in the bedding area with acorns dropping. And I remember turning to Jake and I said, we're right in the thick of this. I'm like, anything could happen at any time because the deer, when they were making it out to the field, they were getting out there really early and we were quite a ways into the timber. I'm like, so anything could move at any second. And I remember looking over and seeing this buck standing there and uh, slapping the back of the tree because I think he was staring. I think I was moving around kind of, you know, not quite settled down yet because we just got in there. And I'm like, there's a buck right there. And uh, from there, it was a it's kind of a rodeo. The buck zigzagged left and right. And uh, he was at like 40 yards and then 32 yards. And there was a point where I thought, man, this deer, he's sitting and feeding on this oak. At what point does he say that he's not going to say anything, but <laughs> at what point does he, does he realize that he's content and full and he's going to go back to his bed and lay down and walk out of my life forever? I'm like, I got to make this shot work. And uh, I had fortunately I had my rangefinder with me and I clicked it at 32 and uh, let her sail. And I felt like it was a little far back and a little high, but he ran and rolled and it was pretty sweet it was you know one thing that was cool about that hunt too is uh we always talk about that the the first buck you kill the excitement of the first buck you kill because there's no standard for you know you know you're you're not going in there to try to kill the the biggest buck in the world you just want to kill a buck yeah that was kind of like what that was and i was so freaking jacked because i didn't care what it was i mean i didn't want to shoot a pork buck but to have a nice racked buck i was i was it was like kind of like my first buck all over again. You could probably see in the video. Yeah, you were pumped. Um, so that was just simply because of, you know, the challenge inherent in a new place and Michigan public land being particularly tricky for a lot of folks. All that made it probably especially fulfilling, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you got a camera over your shoulder. You, you feel like people are watching. <laughs> yeah. Do you, what do you, how do you feel about that whole thing? Does that, does that get to you? Do you get, do you feel that added pressure? So for for the public land challenge, yeah, just because it, it is a challenge and uh, I'm a very, very competitive person. So absolutely it does. For my regular hunting, when I'm self-filming, it, this maybe sounds crazy, but I feel like it helps me um, focus on something else rather than get anxious and get nerves. It, it's, I don't know, I love it. I love self-filming. It's, I've had, what even when I was younger, I would forget to bring the video camera and I would run a mile back to the truck and go get the camera just because I, I just had to have it in the tree. What if something happened? <laughs> I didn't get it on film, right? Yeah. I, it's funny you say that. I That's that's how I end, end up being most of the time. I, I hate the pain in the butt of like getting it all set up when I'm in the tree and then taking it down, especially at the end of the night. I just want to like sneak out quiet. I hate having to mess around with stuff and jingle, jingle things in my backpack or whatever it might be that, you know, just having extra gear entails sometimes. So the couple times when I don't bring it, I'm like, oh, this is nice. But then you see a nice buck and you can never look back at it again. And then that kills me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood 
in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Um, so that public land challenge in Michigan, you killed, you know, on that tough situation in Michigan and it panned out. Now I want to, before hearing about your final hunt, or at least the other hunt I know about in 2019. I want to rewind the tape back to 2018 to the other public land challenge you were part of. This is Minnesota. And you had success on that trip as well. And I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because you guys were doing this kind of island hopping kind of thing during that one. And I was curious to hear a little bit more about that particular hunt and then any other times you've done this, because I think for a lot of guys, the hunt in swampy areas, cattail swamps, whatever, here in Michigan, we've got a lot of stuff where there are those islands. Um, I'd love to hear kind of how you guys approached it in that case or any other situations you've you've seen where you have targeted these islands as, as buck area, buck bedding areas or anything like that and, and how you approach them, how you set up, all that stuff would be would be interesting. Sure. So I can speak to kind of the approach and the setup, but I personally don't really have that sort of uh, terrain by me. We don't really have um, Oak Islands. And the very few that we do actually last year, I went in and looked at one in the summer and it had, um, it was like two or three different trail cameras on it. The one guy had a note on his trail camera saying, please don't steal this. And there was a minimum. <laughs> it, it was a whole thing. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I, I don't know if that video kind of broke the seal on islands, it, it, island hunting, because the, the video really did make it look so simple. You right. just hunt the islands and try to kill them. But, uh, that, that hunt was actually a result of, um, being the guy willing to, um, work like crazy for it because we ended up going three miles back and uh, carrying a ton of crap on my back, the camera, the camera arm. Um, so it really did work out that way. The big thing that we learned or I learned on those islands is you, if you say the island is kind of long, like a peninsula, and you start by setting up at the beginning of the island, that better be your best sit because so, later in the night that I'm, oh, go I'm going to interrupt you, Joe. Sorry. Yep. We gotta we gotta take one step back before this and and just I gotta hear the basic gist of like what this habitat or what the scenario looks like for people that aren't familiar with the video who haven't seen kind of the example maps and stuff you showed. Um, I think correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're basically talking about big cattail swamp with isolated 
high ground islands in the middle of that that have oak trees on them and series of those scattered throughout. Is that right? Or would you describe it any other way? Yep. Nope. You're, you're exactly correct. Okay. So yep. that's just want to make sure we have the right picture in everyone's minds. Now continue. Yep. So it, it was a matter of really just hopping those islands and kind of working your way back through them. Um, the, the thing I will say, this is where I really got really good at reading sign was I would get onto the islands and I would say, I think the sign might be old. And then I could turn to dad and say, Hey, what do you think about this? He's like, yep, the sign is old. This is, this is garbage. We need to keep moving. So, and the sign too, it might just be the scrapes and the dirt are getting dry. Uh, there's no fresh poop um, that you can tell the acorns haven't dropped in a while. So we worked our way through the islands. The island that I ended up killing on was, I believe the furthest one back there uh, in, in those cluster of islands. When I got to that island, it was, it just screamed at me. There was fresh poop. Um, there were scrapes where you could, you could tell where he dug his claws and it was still wet. It hadn't even dried. So I knew there was something back there. Um, and then, so you, you kind of, it's a tricky game because if you go, if you run all the way to the back of the Island, assuming the betting is off the back of the Island, the, um, the, well, I guess that's, that's probably your best way to do it, to be honest, because if you're, if your oaks are dropping um, on the back of the island and you're set it set up on the front of the island, that buck is going to come out of his bedding, feed on the oaks on the back of the island, and never make it to the front of the island. So best best thing for somebody that's hunting an area like that um, year after year after year is to figure out exactly where the bedding is because you don't want them to get hung up on one specific acorn uh, oak tree um, all night and then not move until after you get down because Dan, Dan actually ran into that. He had that year-and-a-half-year-old buck come in. It fed like 40 yards away and it fed till it was black. And that was, that was a huge learning experience for me. You have to have to find the first oak trees um, from bedding because those deer don't want to move too far from bedding if they don't have to in uh, until it gets dark. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of talks in a circle. No, it does. Um, so if someone has, you know, if someone was able to get out there the spring before, they can go and scout these islands and they can look and try to find that bedding off the backside and they can try to figure out, okay, here's the first couple oak trees and how close can I get without the deer seeing me or smelling me or hearing me? That's the ideal scenario. But let's say we're hunting public and it's, you know, we're heading from out of state. We haven't been able to scout it in person before. We're heading in blind like you guys did in that situation. And you guys were just looking at maps and then scouting on the ground and moving as you did. Um, Talk to me about how you try to approach each new island and in, in how you tried to work your way into it without spooking deer, but trying to get close enough. This is kind of a similar scenario as I guess I asked about in your Michigan hunt. But again, it's how do you pick the spot within the spot in this scenario? So, yeah, yeah. So, again, it, for me, it goes to shootability. Um and maybe that's that might be it's something I've always kind of kick around. Maybe it's a kink I need to work out of my system and start getting the deer twenty yards from me. But I want I want to be able to shoot thirty yards to the left and thirty yards to the right. So I'm covering a sixty yard area that that deer is going to walk through and he's in trouble. Um, that's a big deal for me. But then being I mean still being close enough that he's going to go past you. Um, stay on on that island. There was kind of like a little. It was kind of high in the middle, so I stayed on the downwind side of the island and skirted, I crouched down when I walked, just in case there was something on the upwind side of the island bedded, that way it wouldn't see me, just in case it came onto the island and moved around. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Especially when you don't when you don't know exactly where they might be, it becomes even more careful to be assuming any, the worst case scenario, I guess, right? 
Exactly. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and then when I get set up in a situation like that, where I don't know where they are, I'm moving really slow. Um, it was very windy. So that helped because if you, when, when a deer, I always say this, a deer isn't looking for you when they come out to the field or whatever, they're looking for movement. So when that deer is laying in that bed, if you're moving around all drastically, uh, climbing the tree, making fast motions, it's going to catch, it's more likely to catch that deer's eye. And that deer might be laying there kind of groggy, um, not, not all wound up, but you can sure get them wound up fast if you're making motions that they're going to pick out. So I move really slow, just go slow. Um, don't make any obvious movements, climb up the side of the tree, um, where you don't think the deer are going to see, put the tree in between you and the deer where you suspect the deer to be. So just going slow that way. Yeah. Do you ever have any other, uh, adjustments you make again, when you're thinking you could be close to bed a deer, uh, as in, you know, sometimes I've heard people go extra low because they want to make sure they don't get skylined or they want to make sure they don't, you know, get so high as to be visible from a farther distance. So some people hunt lower than usual because they don't want to be spotted from the bedded buck while other people say they want to be higher so that if that deer starts moving their way, they won't be as likely to smell them or see them. Does does your height ever change based off scenarios like that? A little bit, not not a crazy amount. Um, obviously like on that bedded buck hunt, I knew I wanted to get as high as possible. And there's, there's a point when you get really high, you start to mess up that angle of, you know, if you're going for a double lung shot, it gets, it, it shot becomes more difficult if you get too high. And then I do get a little bit worried about going too low and getting picked off, but then there's the going too high and uh, getting picked off when they're bedded. So yeah, I guess I think about it, but I, it's something I'm going to start paying closer attention to. Um, I, I got a buddy, Justin Wright. Um, he's got a, he was telling me about a swamp that he hunts where, uh, if there's any hunters hunting the hardwoods that butts up to the swamp, you don't see much for deer, um, coming into the hardwoods. He said, but if there's no hunters and you just go sit on the ground, you'll see all kinds of deer. He said, because the deer have become so accustomed to sitting in their beds and watching people climb up the trees. So that was something he told me this year that I'm going to start paying attention to more. Hmm. Yeah. You always wonder what what they what they know about you. I I can't remember what maybe maybe you said this earlier just now, and I'm losing my mind. Or in something I was listening to earlier in preparing for this, you said it. But there was a scenario where you realized that there was a buck you've been hunting for years that had been possibly watching you for all those years, and that's one of the things that I always battle with is wondering like. Sometimes these bucks could be bedded off on a point or much closer to the road than you would think. And every time you go in, you think you have to go off into the back stuff. You have to get far from the road to get in there deep because you think that's where the big buck should be. But maybe he's right up front sitting in this stupid stuff. And you think it's stupid, but it's actually really smart because the buck sees you every time you're walking in. And he's out of there before you ever get set up because of it. Um, I constantly have this little thing in the back of my mind just just chirping to me like you might be a total dumbass mark he might be right there where you're walking by <laughs> have you do you ever have those worries yeah absolutely um yeah i can't think i'm sure it's i'm sure i've run into it before but i absolutely do and and those those ones are always tricky to me too because those are your bigger mature deer and you want to be able to sit back and maybe glass them you know say they're coming out of just a little hole or something and you want to sit back and glass them but those are the bucks that they don't move out of that hole until after dark right they, they, they're so tricky to hunt. Yeah. You, know, you got to know they're there, but you can't let them know you know they are there. Yeah, that's 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 the trick is that, uh, man, they can sometimes be right right underneath your nose, but you'll never know it unless you are really 
either right on top of them or get lucky or it's the rut or something. Um, yeah. Or I've, there's Justin gentleman that I, I'm talking about. The big thing he does that we've been discussing is just track checking. He learns, he learns these little spots and he learns the trails that come out of them. And he's, he's checking for tracks coming in and out of those little spots. And uh, when he sees that big track going into the spot, he moves in and, and I know he's killed a few of them in little overlook spots that way. So something I'll, kind of start looking for those little trails coming out of those little spots the question i always had when it comes to some of that track checking whether it be trails or i know some guys will track check the edge of a crop field to get an idea of okay is the big boy in the area yet um is how do you pull that off without pressuring them you know i mean without when you're walking around like that 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 this goes back to the debate i'm always having which is in season scouting of any kind i'm always worried about pushing the envelope and leaving my scent or spooking deer. Yeah. I might be learning something, but am I screwing things up by my presence at all? Um, I constantly yeah. am debating how do you, how do you balance those things? So that's a tricky one. In some of those spots, what I like to think about is where I'm walking right now. Is this a spot where people are normally walking? Like there, there's a lot of lanes where people take the lane all the way back to the big woods and then you've got the buck bedding off to the side or something. So I'm maybe checking along the lane where the scent isn't abnormal. Um, it, it, I guess it's all about if you could, I mean, if there were green little lines drawn everywhere where human scent were, or maybe the color change, if you could look at a map and see where all the human scent was and then look at where it's not, um, I think you could learn a lot that way. But just staying, just, maybe I'm over explaining it, but just staying where the human, where they're used to that human scent. Yep. Yep, I know what you're saying. And that's it's as you're saying this, though, I'm thinking to myself, okay, it makes a lot of sense to take advantage of places where deer are used to human concentrations, right? They're used to like I've got a I've got a property that the neighboring property they mow the lawn like way back to the edge of the swamp, even though it's a bunch of thick junk all around there. For some reason they mow some stuff and people are back there every once in a while walking around, but when there's not people back there, it's it's actually pretty good deer country all around it. And so I'm sure there's some of the deer I'm hunting are moving in and around there. And they know that this little spot, they're used to human scent. But then you look at the flip side, which is, okay, yeah, maybe I could take advantage of that. But on the other hand, you know that these older bucks, where do the older bucks like to spend their daylight activity? where they don't get bothered. So I right. want to take advantage of the spot where it's safe to scout and to walk, but does it really matter if that buck's never going to show up there in daylight or, I mean, I, don't know, I guess there's always clues, right? You could, you could see, okay, he passed through here and I know he probably didn't pass through here during daylight because there's always human scent through here. So that tells you that's one piece of the puzzle you could put in there and that that might help you kill him somewhere else. Maybe I don't know. I'm, I'm walk, talking right. myself into circles here. <laughs> no, no, I, that's that's what we deal with, right? Yeah. <laughs> and one, of my, one of my buddies, uh, I've got a buddy who's a heck of a killer. I actually, he's in the most recent um, turkey hunting video that I put up on the beast. The turkey hunting videos are always a little cheesy, so if anybody watches it, I'll forewarn you. But <laughs> he's a heck of a killer. And one of the things, he, he kills a lot of those overlooked bucks. And one of the things he told me, I, I he said, Joe, you're always hunting the bucks that are that you think are pressured, that are that are old and don't want to be around people. He said, you got to remember some of these bucks are more social animals and they want to know what's going on. 
And uh, just just him saying that they're more social animals. They kind of they want to be around the rest of the area. They want to see what's going on. Maybe a doe comes in heat and they want to know about it. Just him saying that some some of the bigger bucks are more social animals has kind of changed my way of thinking and looking at things. So I, maybe maybe me just saying that I'll, I'll get the gears turning for somebody who thinks like me and always thinks that the bucks are a mile in the swamp away from every other deer. <laughs> That's not necessarily true. Well, I, I feel like I'm at this point now for me personally where. I have been so indoctrinated with all of the ways you're supposed to do it. I mean, I've, I've, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. I've, I've written all these articles. I've read all this stuff. I mean, like any of us, right? We've all, we're all consuming all this stuff now all the time. Um, yep. So we all kind of know the standard rules. You're supposed to do it this way. You're supposed to push in here. You're supposed to think this way um, that you can kind of get stuck in a rut. Because now you know everything you're supposed to do. And part of you might say, well, I just need to execute better. But then sometimes you kind of need to just, I'm, I'm starting to realize sometimes that maybe I just need to look at this in a completely different way. Like forget the rule book. Let's just throw something new at the wall and see if that sticks. Because if, if the rule book isn't working in this scenario, why keep trying it? Why not just try new things? I, I'm kind of like, Sometimes the rule book works, but sometimes you get into a situation where you kind of want to be creative again. It's it's easy to lose that creativity when you know how you're supposed to do it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Is there, exactly. Is there anything – how about this, Joe? I, I got to believe you've, you've seen and heard a lot of the same things I have. What is one of these rules? You probably you, – you, there's got to be something that's like a craw on your side that – you just hear people say all the time and you think to yourself, oh, geez, that's stupid. What's one of those like white tail rules that if you could have a magic wand and wish away and like everyone now has to forget that rule, what would that be? Hmm. Give me some examples so I can kind of wrap my yeah, head around. Yeah. Okay. So for example, this is one of the things that for a lot of years I've, I've done and, and I think there's some warrant to it, but I know there's plenty of other people that have success like you, that being like early season morning hunts. People say, don't hunt early season mornings because bucks are already in their beds before daylight. It's super risky and relatively low odds for success. So people will say, just hunt evenings in the early season. And then once you get to late October, then you, should, then you can start focusing on those mornings. There's one of those like quote unquote rules that a lot of guys will, will tell you. Um, that's that's one example, let's say. Okay. Or cold fronts. Like another one is like, hey, and this is I'm again I preach this all the time, but like if there's a cold front, you gotta hit it hard because the deer are gonna be moving. Like there's a super generic rule. Yeah. Um yeah. anything like that or, or others that you would say, nope, that's bullshit. Boy, so I'm I'm maybe not gonna answer this right, but the the biggest thing I see on uh, reading the internet, all the different discussions and everything. And it's not even it's not a rule, but I gotta say it, is I think people get too obsessed with their gear. They're they're way too worried about all of their gear. What what I always what I always like to think about as I was trying to figure things out is that you know, you, you'd like to spend money and then get results, but it doesn't work that way. And you gotta think to yourself, how many encounters did I have with big big bucks this year? Well, I had zero of them. Okay, is that because I don't have the right gear? Usually, no. The answer is no. Um, is that because I didn't scout enough? Yeah, I need to scout more. Um, or hey, I didn't, um, I didn't get this deer because it was 
around the backside of the tree. Okay. Is that because you're in a tree stand and you need to set up differently? Or perhaps maybe you do need a saddle. Maybe all of your situations, you get bucks in on you, you screw up all the time and it's because you don't have the right shootability. And maybe you do need a saddle because that's just how you think that's the error you make. And a saddle would be a patch on it. Or it's just, I know I, I just said people want gear to be their magic potion too often. And then I said a saddle might be your magic potion. <laughs> yeah, but you, you get what I'm saying. I do. Getting Buying new gear is not – and maybe that's your goal. Maybe you're a gear person. You love tinkering with gear. But at the end of the season when you don't have a gear, you better not be pissed off because you wasted your entire summer tinkering with your gear when – drinking a beer when you should have been out glassing. Yes, that's a that, that's my pet peeve. That's a great point. That's a great point. Now, I'm going to ask you the flip side of that. So so what if and you kind of could have <laughs> this is I'm going to give you a hard one here because what you just told me sort of answers this next question, but I'm going to force you into another one. So, okay, so I first asked you what's one of those typical rules that you wish people wouldn't pay attention to. So, what about the reverse of that, which is if you could create a rule? So you just sort of did. You said, don't blame your equipment for your lack of success. But now I'm going to give you the power to, to make one more. So like lay out one Joe Rentmeister whitetail rule that everyone you wish would remember this one thing that, that for you, you think that would help a lot of people. Sure. So... I'm going to almost take the one that I just said, and I'm going to say learn how to read sign because too many people, <clears throat> their their scouting is their trail camera or um, seeing the deer or whatever, or maybe seeing a track, but you have to learn, well, the track is sign. So now I'm counter, counter getting myself again. Um, learn how to read sign. L- learn how to read what's going on around you. Maybe, maybe, and I, I didn't answer it directly, but <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's no right or wrong answers. So you could totally say that. Um, so, okay. So give me, let's go to like the sub bullet on that though. And I know you've given examples already throughout our conversation, but if someone heard you say that and they said, okay, I got to learn how to read sign better. Tell me in detail. Like if, I, if you're my teacher and I'm the student and you said, I need to learn how to read sign better. Now I'm going to say, okay how do I do that better? Like what are some things that I can do to more effectively read the sign? Is it just a matter of paying attention to things in more detail or should I be paying attention to different things or give me a little more color there? So the big thing that I've heard Andy and all those guys talk about that I'm no different on is spending a ridiculous amount of time in the woods. And with that though is, uh, picking up on what's going on around you. There's a lot of people that'll go for a walk in the woods, go scouting, but that's literally what they're doing. They're going for a walk in the woods and then they take their selfie. They post on social media and say, there, I did some scouting today. But what, <laughs> that doesn't count. What did you learn? <laughs> what's that? I said, that doesn't count. No, that doesn't count. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what did you learn? What did you pick up? Um, you could, you could almost look at scouting like hunting. Was it a, was it a failed day of scouting? If I went scouting and I didn't come back with a, a new piece of the puzzle, and I, I think a lot of people might be able to relate to this, you go, I haven't been able to scout much with a little guy, but the few times I do scout, I'll pick up on one little tweak in something, and then it just it's just on my mind for the next two weeks. So when you're in the woods, um, pick up on what you're seeing, slow down. That That's a really big one. All of the killers that I've ever walked through the woods with, they all go slow. They they think about what's happening. They look at look at what's going on around them, and they think, "How is the deer going to move through here?" 
and it's you, you literally just stand there and think sometimes. Um, and now I don't want people to just go stand in the woods. <laughs> but <you gotta> think. <laughs> yes, I follow you. Do you, you know something I do? I think a lot of other guys do this too. Is when I'm out there scouting, I'm constantly scouting at two different levels. So by that I mean I'm scouting what's right in front of me right in front of my feet on the ground level, but then I also like to have my phone out looking at the aerial map so that I'm also looking at the 30,000-foot overview. And so I'm always trying to look at what's the big picture, what's the small picture, the tiny picture right in me, because I never want to forget the context around me. So yeah, this this rub right in front of me is an important puzzle piece, but I also yep. constantly want to look at how does this fit into the bigger scheme, and is there some bigger terrain feature or something else that funnels or factors into this little thing I see right around me, you know, do you, do you ever do that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's where, um, we're all guilty of, of walking and scrolling through our phones. So that's where you need to stop when you're looking at your phone you need to stop because if you walk past that one rub, that's the beginning of a rub line taking you back to a bed, you might've just, um, hurt yourself. So that's where you need to stop, look over your map and then continue trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. And, and with the map too, Something that's kind of come in handy, and you've probably experienced this, is just you, when you see things, you start dropping pins, and with those pins, you put your notes. And uh, when you get home, you go back and kind of look over it, and stuff starts clicking. It starts making sense. Yeah. And everybody's a map professional nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> They're a handy tool, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, second to last question. Biggest mistake by wannabe beast hunters there's all these folks that follow the forum they see the videos they hear people you know for the last decade or so maybe more than uh, than that you know there's been this this uh coaching tree of sorts of people learning from dan or learning from the dequistos or whoever um and now there's all these different people trying it preaching it talking about it what would you say the biggest mistake you see from people trying to hunt this quote unquote beast style? Yeah. Giving up, giving up is the the big one I've seen. I mean, over the last 10 years of being on the beast, I've seen so many guys that are, they say they got out of the swamp and they, their, their sticks were clanking. They didn't know how to pack them together. They threw everything down. It was all strapped. It was falling off. They got mud in their boots. They were frustrated. And then they literally give up. I've seen giving up is seems to be the main reason people fail. Yeah. What's the solution then? Uh, well, uh, if you don't know how to pack your sticks together, go on the beast and ask, hey, how do I, I can't get my picks, my sticks packed together, how do I do it? Um, but the, the true biggest solution overall to all of that is to just keep doing it. Just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Um, make little tweaks. Pick up on what you're seeing. Picking up on what you're seeing is just such a big one. Um, I know those are very generic answers, but. Yeah, that, that that's yeah. all. That's that's good stuff. That's there's no really great specific answer to that one. I feel like it's so true though. It's it's that it's it's hard to ever communicate the importance of that concept in like just saying it. Like, oh, you just gotta do it. You just gotta push through. You gotta persevere. You gotta have grit. It's hard to just say yeah. it in front to connect to people, but it's. I think the best way for people to learn about that is just to see by see examples so watching people do it seeing you guys push through day after day hunting the whether it's the public land challenge in michigan excuse me or if it's you know any one of any other people 
putting it in, putting in the hours day after day, pushing hard in the public or pushing hard in some piece of private or failing, 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 struggling, 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 but keeping after it. And finally you kill that buck you're after in December. I think that is, while there's a whole lot of negativity that can come from social media and everybody having a podcast and everybody having a YouTube channel and all this media out there, it can be overwhelming. There's a lot of yahoos out there, but what it has done that I think is pretty cool is that it gives people the opportunity to see that everybody has struggles. Everybody has challenges. Everyone screws up. Um, it can feel really lonely if you weren't able to follow along with everybody else making the same mistakes or having the same challenges and learning as they go too, right? And pushing through them. Um, yeah. So there's something to that. Yeah, and and sometimes too, I've, I've been guilty of it. You'll have a bad day. Um, everything, every single thing that could possibly wrong, that could go wrong, goes wrong. And uh, you literally feel like you want to quit. You, you're like, hunting is stupid. Why do I waste my time doing this? I don't know. Maybe you don't get those days. But but I'll get them, and I'll, I'll finally get out of the swamp, and I'll get back to the truck. And you just go to bed, wake up the next morning. You just need to reset. You need to reset your thinking. Because it, it does get tricky. It does get hard. And that's kind of the fun of it. That's the beauty of it. And as you progress along, you'll have less and less of those experiences because you'll start to embrace it and love it. And um, I mean, that one, one example that I'll give is if – I hate camping. I absolutely hate camping. <laughs> and uh, if it just seems silly, but I hate sweating. I hate being around the fire. I hate the bugs biting me. Oh, Joe. But now you can... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you get into... Yeah, you get it. You get it. I mean, I'll do it. But now you get into um, the public land challenge where we're sleeping in tents and the, the rain is flooding out our tents and you're walking through the woods and the bugs are biting you. I love it. Like, I, I love the chat. Like, you start to love the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the process. It's the, yeah, it's yeah, the journey. Yep. Yep. So I can have the same bad things go wrong hunting as camping. And I love it hunting. Hate it camping. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's the grind. Yeah. Yeah. That That's what I'm constantly, I'm, especially the last year I've been trying to remind myself of this over and over again. And anyone listening in the, who's heard past episodes has heard me preach on this lately, but I, I definitely, I get really goal oriented. Like I'm so focused on trying to to get whatever that goal is. So if it's the kill on that trip or if it's the one buck I'm after this year on a local property, I get so obsessed with it that it's really easy for me to get stressed out by it and just like single-mindedly yeah. focused and worked up. And then you can lose some of the joy in there if you get too worked up. So I'm constantly trying to like yeah. reset myself to don't be obsessed with the end goal, obsessed with the process, enjoy the process. If you can learn to love the journey along the way to the goal, then whether you achieve that thing in the end or not, while of course you want to push for it, um, your ultimate satisfaction or happiness in life or whatever, doesn't have to depend on that. If you can learn to love that journey. Um, so that's a, a personal goal of mine to, to continue getting better at year after year. No, that makes sense. That absolutely. I actually, I get, I want the success so bad that I always make, I, I shouldn't say I always, I make the mistake and I go shoot two and three year olds. That's, that's one of my big things that I got to quit doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh, if I wouldn't have shot the buck that, uh, the bedded buck and I would have wait another 20 minutes, I'd have 150 inch mature buck that's or funny. if, uh, in Ohio, I, in Ohio, if I would have been a little more, cal- I guess we didn't talk about the Ohio hunt. I know. But, I, didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to throw you under the bus with the antler shot. <laughs> oh no! I don't care. It's, we all make mistakes, but I uh, wasn't calculated, and um, I shot one in the antler, and it's just those, those fine little things you got to tweak. 
Yeah, so true. All those little things. Um, okay, so Joe, you spent a whole lot of time with me tonight. I know you've got a little one at home, and uh, I don't want to talk your ear off anymore. But I will ask you one final thing. You Babe Ruthed it last year with that buck uh, that you spooked the night before, and you went in the next morning and killed him right over top of his bed. So I want to see if you can do the same thing for the 2020 season. If you were, if you could guarantee that you kill one buck, how do you think it's going to happen? Like, if if you could like picture in your head, okay, I think I know this one deer, and I think if if I had to pick, like when I'm going to kill him, where I'm going to kill him, if I forced you into making your very best guess of how it's going to happen. What's that scenario? How are you going to kill a buck this year? Yeah, so there's one one specific buck that I've chased for, I want to say it's like four or five years now, and he's seven or eight years old. He's a really old deer, and I'm almost positive he's alive based on tracks from the, the um, spring scouting here. And if if I can call this year, I've tried, I could go on, for, I, I could spend two hours talking about how I've tried to kill this deer and all that stuff, but I think this deer's vulnerability is going to be there's again, this is a benefit of mine is not having a lot of deer in our area because there's a, a small group of does that lives in a, in a spot that I feel I can um, manipulate, I guess you could say. And last year, I guess I, I've hunted this deer for so many different years. I've tried so many different things. And one of the things I uh, theorized last year is, Hey, when these does come into heat, he's going to be over here wanting to breed these does and they're, they're night, they're back in the cover. Um, they're not out in the open where everyone else is. So, so this is going to be good. So I threw a trail camera up and, uh, this old deer was on it. I believe it was three times over three days during the rut, middle of the day, um, in this spot. So if, if I can tell you how I'm going to kill this deer, I'm hoping to, um, during this window, like we said, do the whole, the whole repeat thing during this window, catch him doing, um, what hopefully those does come and heat it at about the same time and I can catch him that way. So I'm. And if I don't find anything big in the early season, I'm just going to be patient till the rut because it's I cannot find his bed. Um, I'll keep looking for it, but uh, that that's how I'm going to kill a buck during the rut. <laughs> awesome, and, which is interesting because I've heard you in the past say that the rut frustrates you and that you don't like yeah. it. So now you're yeah. uh, learning to love your nemesis. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Joe. Well, this has been fun. I I appreciate you taking this time to do this. Um, if people want to follow along with your hunts and different things you've got going on or that's going on at the hunting beast, where can they, where can they find all that stuff? Yeah. So, um, head on over to my Instagram, just type in my name, Joe Rettmeister or, uh, on the hunting beast. Um, if you want to something, something I always think is kind of neat. If you, my name is predator TC on the hunting beast form. If you click on my name and scroll back to some of my very first questions, you can see some of the most basic stuff, which is Sometimes I, I read my own stuff and I'm like, what the heck? So yeah, the hunting beast or Instagram. That's awesome, Joe. All right. Well, uh, good luck this coming season. I hope that, uh, early or whatever part of November that was, I hope that's a good, a good rut for you and that you, you kill that old sucker. Yeah. Thank you. And I hope you get that, that one that the little guy was holding the sheds of so he can hold the rack. This oh year. man, that he's, he's my uh, Moby Dick this year. That's the buck I'll be losing sleep over. So fingers, awesome. fingers crossed. Love it. All right. All right, and that's going to do it. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, it's got me just chomping, chomping at the bit to uh, get after some whitetails. And, uh, man, get ready. It's going to be here before we know it, and that is a beautiful thing. So until next time, thank you for listening, and stay wired to hunt.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 